Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do it. That so. weird kadunk that yeah, lights long... going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All rather mysterious. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. It's Thursday night. It's about 20 minutes to 8. It's March the 20th, 1975. The Saxons are flapping. The thumbs are in the belt loops. And all is well with the world. Hey up, you pop crazy youngsters. And welcome to part 3 of episode 51 of Chart Music. I'm your host, I'll need them. And before we go any further, I just want to remind you that if you want the full episode of Chart Music, you need to get them little fingers out. You need to take them over to your keyboard. You need to tap in patreon.com slash chart music. And you need to pledge. Seriously, full episodes, no adverts. Not even this one that I'm doing now. Anyway, sermon over at last. Onward. Yeah, that's the sound of the goodies there, and a wonderful number at number 23. It's called the Funky Gibbon. We've got two very funky and very good-looking gibbons all the way from the Royal Safari Park. Can I have a little bite of your banana here? Mmm, that's absolutely delicious. While I'm eating this, how about this marvellous number from The Times? cut to Tone, flanked by two girls in disturbing monkey masks and holding bananas, one of whom holds up the back of her hand like women do when they want to show off an engagement ring. Tony describes them as two very funky and very good-looking gibbons all the way from the Royal Safari Park and then ponces a bite off the engaged monkey's banana before introducing some way, somehow, I'm keeping you by the times. We've already covered the former Latineers in chant music number 43 with their cover of People, which got to number 16 in February of 1969, and then they disappeared. But then, 
In the autumn of 1974, they rose a hand from the grave, got with the times, if you will, and took you little trust maker to number 18 in October of 1974. This is the follow-up to Miss Grace, which did nothing in America, but got to number one in January of this year, ripping down down by status quo from the summit of Mount Pop and staying there for a week before giving way to January by pilot. It's been rushed out while the group are in the UK touring with Ann Peebles, and even though it's not in the charts yet, here they are in the studio. But before we get stuck into the times, that introduction, very creepy, and, you know, a very poor example set to the youth here by Tony talking with his mouth full. Yeah, it's disturbing. We don't need that, do we? Yeah. We certainly don't, and it's a kind of departure, really, from the sort of, like, rather straight, Pooter-esque type introductions, uh, that he was doing um, at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. This is more like the sort of, you know, like the kind of DLT territory, really, all this nonsense about bananas that doesn't even work as innuendo. Yeah. But it's clearly intended to be as such, you know. Yeah, it's sinister, though. Those, he's got those animal masks and the banana mouth insertions. It's, it's like something from the last half hour of The Shining. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit Wicker Man, I feel. Yeah. I was a bit worried that the salmon of knowledge would pop up later on. <laughs> Thankfully not. And also it falls foul of that old uh, inexplicably common confusion between primates in that uh, he refers to them as gibbons, quite clearly chimpanzee masks. It's not the same thing. Yeah. It's not the same thing, Tony. Have you ever seen that film Conga? where Michael Goff is a mad scientist who creates a giant gorilla. And he starts off, he's got a little chimp in his lab, and then he injects it with the growth serum, and it turns into like a 40-foot gorilla. (laughs) Yes, it does. And, but at the end, not to, well, all right, it's a spoiler. Spoil it, David. It shrinks to the tiny little uh, creature it was, the simian creature it was at the beginning, which is very poignant, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. back to a chimp. (laughs) Yeah. Now, this is the style of Top of the Pops at the time, isn't it? You come out of nowhere with a number one, you're guaranteed a free shot with your next single and uh, you know the times are being allowed that but it's pretty clear from the off that this song isn't going to be the two tribes to Miss Grace's relax is it yeah yeah I would have watched this episode avidly at the time and yet it hasn't impinged on my memory at all and yet at the same time you know yeah it's bog standard for this kind of thing really this kind of frankly obsolete mode of um, soul music making Mm -hmm. but you know given everything else the bill of fare tonight um, it's an absolute golden shower of brilliance I mean it absolutely pisses on everything else Mm. As the review in Melody Maker said, this could have been recorded at any time in the past 20 years. Yeah. But yeah, you are right, David. There is a, there is a touch of class being brought here. Mm. You know, it's, it's something that will go well with the chicken and chips in the basket. That point about the 20 years thing is, it, it holds true, really, because, you know, in its time, this is kind of particularly old school. And mm. of course, black music has gone through that kind of militancy of the late 60s, early 70s with, you know, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder's and Curtis Mayfield's. Yeah. And it's as if that has kind of sort of you know, blown out slightly. And there seems to be almost like a kind of return of this kind of more reassuring, more choreographed, um, smarter, you know, mode of like soul music making. Yeah, choreographed with matching suits, which was the style at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, the matching suits very much, yeah. They're all nicely turned out, aren't they? Matching um, salmon pink. Uh, rig outs. It's salmon pink, but nonetheless, a sort of throwback to, you know, monochrome, innocent barbershop days. Oh, it's just, I mean, it's just pop music, though, isn't it? Mm. I mean, like, back at the end of the 60s, because 
I've, I've done the times before. They were on the, uh, when was it from? 69, yes. was it? They then did seem on the verge of being left behind and their name becoming bitterly ironic. With the They had the big suits and, you know, the, the big choruses and crowd-pleasing and all of that. Yeah. And it was really out of step with where soul music was heading yeah. and where soul music ended up going. Um, but, I don't know, 1975, it seems like just by staying where they are, They've watched everything revolve, and five or six years later, they're still just doing what they're doing. Yeah. But the thing is that that showbizy backing that they had mm. in the sixties that was letting them down has sublimated into a sort of Philly lushness. Mm. Um, so they sound pure nineteen seventy five, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, it's mm. uh, it's good. And of course, they're up against the top of the Pops Orchestra, who, uh, as we're going to find out, are, are going to have a very busy shift tonight, aren't they? And it's not the usual crime scene, no. but it's it does look like the Times are a little bit bemused by how fast this accompaniment yes. is, is going. Like the original is fairly quick by the standards of 70s soul, but... This is sped up to like a, a crazy... It's like someone put the word around that the BBC bar was going to close in five minutes. <laughs> um, they do the full song here, and it's almost a full minute shorter than the record. Fuck. But, you know, beyond that, they don't do a terrible job. They're not, they don't sound like Philly studio musicians or anything like that, but they, no. they cope. They, they do it as deftly as they're play a bbc sports theme or yeah you know, music for an advert or they're something. just cracking on with it glad to be here well they're they're pros aren't they yeah you know and they get through it because they can sing live properly mm. there's a lot of live vocals on this episode and they're mostly competent but they tend to be a bit limp and a bit sort of they're a bit of a mid-70s sag to a lot of the performances and the times sing up you know, and force the issue. It's it's mm. it's nice to. I mean, despite despite the fact that the top of the pops orchestra have effectively put them on one of those mechanical rodeo balls and cranked the speed <laughs> up, they yeah. do it. They hang on. They stay in the saddle. They are Gene yeah. Wilder in Stir Crazy. Yes. You know, they just they just got faster and faster, and they're still there. They're kind of giving each other amused looks. Uh, going, yeah. what? this is going. This is a bit. This is a bit rapid, isn't it? But yeah, they, yeah, they don't miss a beat. They don't miss a note. No, I, and we're starting to see more and more of the audience, which is always a joy. Yeah, in top of the pops episodes of this era, and uh, yeah, it's 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 very dowdy and austere, isn't it? A lot of blokes in um, jackets with uh, condor collars. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Kenny-themed stickers and badges that have been lobbed out, yeah. which everyone's gleefully put on, even though they look like the sort of people who would not give them the time of day normally. But there is one standout, of course, is that bloke who's wearing the yellow kung fu pyjamas yeah. with some Chinese lettering on the back. <laughs> I would have worn the shit out of that at the time, and possibly nowadays. This may have been the month that my mum bought me and showed me an outstanding yellow matching kung fu vest and pants set with two bold kung fu fighters just like in each other's face about to just, you know, put the moves on each other. And I wasn't allowed to wear that until we went on a holiday like months later. But what would be the joy in that? You surely weren't proposing to wear them in public. Well, yeah, I was... I was five. I didn't care, man. And, you know, a, a kung fu vest and pants set like that, yeah, that deserved to be seen, man. That was just too good I, to, to, to go no, under a T-shirt. No, I, no, not at all. At five, you have sentience. No, no, no. We were still doing music and movement 
in a vest and pants. And I would have cut a fucking dash, let me tell you. We were never reduced to our pants for, for um, PE or anything like that. It was shorts. Yeah, but you were older than me, though, David. <laughs> we weren't doing PE just yet. We were pretending to be a tree. Up in Leeds, you would not consider, you know, if you were about two or 18 months old or something like that, you wouldn't mind being seen in, you know, in your pants in public. But after about the age of three or four, it was the absolute lowest, worst humiliation. Nelson Munts, you know, in, in The Simpsons, if you imagine that, that kind of parade of shame that he does. That is how being caught in your... Therefore, it didn't matter whether it was kung fu or whatever, you know, on, on, on your underpants. I mean, they were, you know, mine were just white little Y fronts and a little plain vest. You know, this wasn't a, you know, this wasn't a medium for ostentation. Put it that I way. think that says more about the state of pants in Leeds than anything else, David. Well, I mean, they weren't great. That, that is certainly for sure. We were free spirits, man. But the thing is, remember, remember, you're as far as we Leeds people are concerned, you're a southerner. Oh yeah, and a scab as well. Yeah, I mean, but... This is frankly an example of southern ways. I mean, the reason I couldn't put these this vest and pants on is because it was the rule in Nottingham household, certainly on our estate anyway, that your mum and dad would buy you loads of new clothes months in advance of your holiday that you could not wear until you went on holiday to give off the impression that you wore new stuff all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Taylor, is this ringing any bells with you? Yeah. yeah, I don't remember having whole wardrobes to take on holiday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I distinctly remember that when we went on holiday, the first thing I had to do was put everything on and walk up and down the caravan for my mum and dad to look at and, and, and show off to me grandparents who were there as well. And I do distinctly remember walking around extremely proud in my kung fu vest and pants set. <laughs> we were going to have to mix with people from Sheffield, so you had to show them who the governors were. Yeah, you'd meet Nottingham people in Filey. And you wouldn't even recognise it. <laughs> but yeah, the times. The only thing that bothers me about this song is it's called Some Way, Somehow, I'm Keeping You. Oh, yeah. And as an older man of the world here, I'm thinking, I bet you're not, mate. Because first of all, determination counts for very little in these matters. Mm. It can often make the situation worse, in fact. Mm. And... Even if you do manage to persuade her to stay, she's going to be so full of suppressed resentment, she will be an unexploded bomb emotionally. And whatever ends up setting that off, however innocent, you can be absolutely sure that it will be 100% your fault. Um, Which, if you trace everything back, it probably was. So... At this point, your best bet is just to put a bullet in this lame horse, move on, and uh, spend the next six months wanking over the thought of women who you find much less attractive than her who wouldn't even give you a second glance. Mm. Or give Tony Blackburn a call and drown your sorrows together. (laughs) So the following week, and for every week since, some way, somehow, I'm keeping you failed to chart. The follow-up. Do you know what it is, Taylor? If you think that title was bad, what about this one? God's Gonna Punish You. (laughs) Just failed to make it over the line. Getting to number 41 in January of 1976. And Time was called on their career over here. Incidentally, the Times were in Dallas on the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated for the 1963 Dick Clark Caravan of Stars tour with Paul and Paula, Little Eva, Brian Highland and the Ronettes. 
a show that, according to legend, Lee Harvey Oswald bought a ticket for that very morning. There's fucking optimism, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Times should feel lucky they didn't have any books to deposit that morning. That reminds me a little bit of um, Mark Steele's best ever line, which said that his ideal day would consist of a workers' uprising in the morning, followed by a quiet drink with friends in the evening. And it's a bit similar to that, really. You know, my Lee Harvey Oswald's ideal day is a presidential assassination in the afternoon. And in the evening, I'm going to do the locomotion. <laughs> yeah, some way, somehow, I am keeping you. Getting their applause at the moment, and that's the sound of the times. I said we had something for everybody, and now for all the fellas, we've got pants people dancing to What Am I Gonna Do With You from Barry White. has to wait for the audience to stop cheering. They really like that song. Before he can introduce something for all the fellas, Pan's people emoting to What Am I Gonna Do With Ya by Barry White. We've already covered Barry on Chart Music 25 when I'm Gonna Love You Just A Little Bit More Baby got to number 23 in June of 1973 and since then he's notched three more hits into his bedpost. This is the follow-up to You're the First, The Last, My Everything, which got to number one for two weeks in December of 1974 and was the chart-topping perennium between Gonna Make You a Star by David Essex and Lonely This Christmas by Mud. It entered the chart at number 32 weeks ago, soared 17 places to number 13 last week, and this week it flew up another eight places to number five as Barry is obviously too busy having sex to pop over the Atlantic or something, in his stead are the people of Pan. And you'd think, right from the off, Pan's people, Barry White. Whoa. Mm. But I'm not, I'm not feeling it from this. this is, I feel the dads are, are, are being let down here. That's strange that you say that, because often enough, whenever I come on, whenever there's a Pan's People thing, which is practically every time, I always say some sort of variation on the same thing, which is um, yes. sexist but sexless. You know, there's always that thing about their movements that are kind of studiously unsexy. It's like... Sexist lust. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, yeah. No. But it's, it's, you know, they're slightly kind of frumpy, like Joyce Grenfell leading Eurythmics on the lawns at St Swithin's College, that kind of vibe. You mean frumpy pumper? Yes, frumpy pumpy, quite. Yeah, you've <laughs> got to use that from now on, David. Okay, frumpy pumpy, yeah, that'll save time. I'll just say frumpy pumpy. Yes. However, there's something about this trap which is almost kind of, I mean, it's almost like Barry White is sort of, conveying exuding sexuality almost in the abstract there's something kind of diaphanous about this mm. particular track that's you know amorphous or whatever and i think the set that they've got that kind of slightly kind of wet dreamy sort of dry icy sort of vibe um and um you know that's something that's actually to me actually kind of works i mean look look it's not exactly look it's not exactly 
horny as such or whatever, but it's it's <laughs> whatever the parlance is. But um, I love it when you talk dirty, David. It, it's for me, it kind of works at least atmospherically. I think it exudes a certain notion of sexuality in a way that they mm. n- normally they kind of kill the thing, you know, in the pants people, whatever. But you know, frankly, there could be Morris dancing and they probably, be, you know, they'd be sexy. But um, even so, even so. Um, I, no, I'm all right with this. Yeah, I mean, I feel the dads are being let down here because there's, there's too much dry ice, there's too much macrame or whatever it is hanging in the foreground, and too much clothes on pans people. Yeah. All you all you get to see is a bit of back, mm. and by back, I, I don't mean in the mix a lot um, <laughs> scheme of things. Yeah. Well, look, the the weird thing about both the main dance troops, right, like people and legs, is that the steamier the record to which they're dancing, the more prim and Edwardian their yes. outfits and routine. Yes. It's quite correct that the sort of floaty, dreamy look and dance fits the floaty dreaminess of the record. Mm. But there's not a hint of raunch, and I don't think that's no. a coincidence. I mean, we've previously seen them interpret uh, Andrea True Connection singing yes. a song about making a porn film by dressing up as uh, innocent pacific island girls mm. and uh noodling around in a bamboo hut uh and now it's it's barry white's condom busting fuck anthem and they're, <laughs> they're frocked up to the ankles you yeah. know and they're twirling around like children but when you give them a nice jaunty dance record like mm. sir duke yeah uh, or a or a bittersweet uh disco vignette like dancing queen mm. They go off, don't they? Fucking they hell. practically lean out of the telly and give you a tweak. You know, it's it, there's definitely a balance, right? It's all about the balance. Mm. The producers want a bit of sex, but not a whole sex. Yeah. And so the the girls have to sex it up or sex it down yes. in relation to the record yeah. to keep it right on the plimsoll line. Like here, I think they're, they've deliberately gone very classy and respectable, precisely yeah. because Barry is singing, I know when we get through, girl, I won't be able to move. So they have to slightly (laughs) defuse this beautiful, vivid picture of Barry White, all spaffed out, lying naked and sweaty on his back with his arms (laughs) spread out, breathing like a racehorse with his slowly detumescing penis lolling over to one side like a boiled leek. (laughs) you, You need to do something to take the fizz out of that. Yes. Yeah. We like Barry White, don't we? Yeah, I, I love Barry White, like any semi-redeemable human being, uh, apart from the idea that you're meant to listen to his records while you're having sex. Yeah. Which strikes I've never me done a that. Terrible idea, mm. because surely it would be like having this, this burly, loudly wheezing man standing <laughs> at the end of the bed over your shoulder shouting encouragement through a cupped hand. <laughs> it's like, I love these records, and... I can certainly see how they are sexy in their way, but to me they have to be kept well away from actual sexual activity yeah. because if those two things come into contact, they make each other seem ridiculous. Mm. But musically, this episode's picked right up, hasn't it? Mm. Mm. It's just a shame he didn't stick to the old rules of uh, show business nomenclature mm. and call himself Fats White. <laughs> uh just go for it. You know, remember when if someone had a distinctive physical characteristic, they had to name themselves yeah. after it, like slim, mm. fats, uh, shorty, yeah. horse mouth, yes. you know, <laughs> uh, or a, a 
beardy, smeary-faced ginger cunt. Yeah, except quite often it, it was cool. the opposite, wouldn't they? So, in fact, you know, it's like you know, in sitcoms, like on the buses, the black character is mm. called Chalky, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, so you should actually yeah. assume it's called skinny white. Lofty. Yeah, lofty, exactly. Taffy in Dad's Army. So skinny yeah. white would have worked. Skinny white. And no offence to gingers. No. <laughs> uh, I've, fa- I've fancied a number of you. <laughs> Taylor, you interviewed Barry White, didn't you? Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah, it wasn't like a, you know, an in-depth The Barry White interview, but it was for a feature called Rebellious Jukebox in Melody Maker, which was like where people listed their favourite records and talked about them. And it was really, it was just a space filler in the magazine, but it was a good way to get to meet people who wouldn't usually have a feature in Melody Maker at that point in in time. Um, So, yeah, I did two on the same day. It was Barry White in the morning and the Human League in the afternoon. Fucking hell. And a cab ride home thinking about how weird my life had become. But, um, yeah, he was staying in that big hotel by Chelsea Football Ground um, in the penthouse suite. So you needed a special key to get the lift up to his floor. Right. As if anyone in 1995 would have wanted to burst in on Barry White (laughs) for any reason. So I went up there and I was led into an oak-panelled ante-room um, and sat down at a huge long wooden table with my back to the double doors leading into the main part of the suite, right? Like I was waiting for a, a medieval king. And uh, so I sat there for a couple of minutes, just the anticipation building. Then I heard the doors open, and Barry White walks round from behind me <sighs> and sits down in the seat opposite. And he's wearing a red silk dressing gown with gold trim. Uh, red silk pajamas with gold trim and red slippers with gold braid right and he sits down and the first thing he does he puts his hand in his pocket pulls out his fags and puts them on the table and it's marlboro reds with a gold zippo lighter and i swear to god i look at his hand as he puts them down and he's wearing a gold ring with a big red jewel in it (laughs) now my strength as an interviewer is that I've never been swayed by fame or notoriety, right? Like, it means nothing to me. I don't observe it. I don't understand the idea of getting autographs or or selfies with people. Do you know what I mean? It baffles me, that stuff. But this is the one time when I thought, yeah, this bloke, this isn't just a bloke like me, but he's good at singing. Right, this, is, this bloke is a star. It's like pure charisma. It wasn't anything he said. In fact, he came across as a man of let's say, very average intelligence. Um, He chose Ain't No Mountain High Enough as one of his records. And I remember him saying to me, Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you. That lyric is about the struggles and hardships of love. It doesn't mean literally a mountain. (laughs) And politely, I refrained from thanking Professor White for this illumination. Um, But, no, he was a real charmer as well. That's the thing. He was was sort of buttering me up, but, you know, he wasn't doing it cynically, right? Like he had... um, Don't think he was trying to have sex with you then? I thought about it at the time. I sort of, on the way home, I was pondering on that, but I came to the conclusion <laughs> I, I don't think so. He, he chose um, 
people get ready was another of his his choices right mm. and he didn't say very much about it so i had to prompt him to say more you know like when you're interviewing someone they don't they're not very articulate or they no. don't want to say much you have to find a way to make them say some more um so i thought about it quickly and he had said something previously about um how he got really into songs with messages for young black people in america right that was what got him into music mm. and so i i said do you think this was a particularly important record because the Impressions version was one of the first big message songs by a black artist? And he said, yes, and you know your history, young man. Whoa. And that didn't help me much with the feature, but it was one of the loveliest personal moments of my entire career, even though it was obvious flattery and buttering up, Mm. because that's like fact one of 60s soul. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Everybody knows that. It's like saying hey, you think the Rolling Stones were important because they were the first sixties British band with a rebellious bad boy image. It's like <laughs> you know, it's not you don't have to be a fucking uh, a rock historian to know that. But mm. either he'd chosen to be very charming to the interviewer, um, which is generally a good way to get decent press, and the bigger the star, the more likely they are to understand that, I found. Uh, or he saw this sort of skinny 22-year-old white kid in jeans and thought, fucking hell, this, this lad, he won't have a Scooby or any of these records are that I'm going to be talking about. And he was pleasantly surprised. I don't know. Neither of those things are all that flattering, really, when you think about it. But, you know, I don't care. And no. I, I think he is known for being the walrus of disarming journalists as well. There's a, <laughs> another story about him being in, interviewed by two Melody Maker writers at the same time. I think because they couldn't decide who should be the one who got to meet Barry White, so they went together. Um, And apparently at the end of the interview, as they were leaving the room, they heard him turn around to his PR person and say, those were two fine gentlemen. Um, Which, you know, that was he trying to be overheard or, you know, is it just that he's got the kind of voice that carries? Who cares? So the following week, what am I going to do with you stayed at number five, its highest position. The follow-up, I'll do anything you want me to, got to number 20 in June of this year and he'd have seven more top 40 hits throughout the remainder of the 1970s. Thanks, people dancing to that one from Barry White right there. We're very flattered that so many people want to see us at Top of the Pops, but please, no more letters, because we have a six-month waiting list at this very moment. But we'll let you know when we can take some more uh, of the requests for tickets. Okay, right now, let's go to the States. The number six sound from the average white band. Pick up the pieces. informs the pop-crazed youngsters that so many of them are battering down the doors of Television Centre that there is now a six-month waiting list to be in the audience and they are to wait for further instructions. He then grabs hold of us and whips us straight in to pick up the pieces by the average white band. Tony's hair is a bit strange here. It's like he's got a side bit 
flipped forwards and sideways across his temple. Mm. So all his hair is going the same way. It's like he's been standing on the prow of a cross-channel ferry or, or next to a duct. You know, he should have folded one of his wing collars over that way as well <laughs> to create like a really strong sense of movement. Formed in London in 1972 by assorted transplanted musicians from Dundee, including Onnie McIntyre and Robbie McIntosh, who were in Chuck Berry's backing band when he recorded My ding ling the average white band knew of each other from various local bands, but met up by chance at a traffic gig in London and decided to team up. A year later, they bagsied a support slot at Eric Clapton's comeback gig and immediately got a record deal with MCA and a manager, Bruce McCaskill, who was Clapton's tour manager and fronted the money to relocate them to Los Angeles and team them up with a riff mod in of Atlantic. Almost immediately, however, they lost McIntosh when he died of a heroin overdose at a party and almost lost bassist Alan Gorry to an OD on the same night. This is their fifth single, the follow-up to How Can You Go Home, which fell to chart just like the other ones. It too flopped in the UK when it was released in July of 1974, but after it got to number one in America last month, it was put out over here again, and this week it's edged up one place from number seven to number six. They've already been on top of the pops two weeks ago, along with six other singles in this week's episode, when Pan's people had a cavort to it. So this week, we get some live footage, and oh dear... As always, the band are poorly served by their own footage. There's a mm. there's a sickly yellow wash about this one, isn't there, chaps? Which it makes them look like they're playing in the tank that was used in the piss Christ installation. <laughs> it does have that yeah. sort of yeah, like that that weird sort of ferris hue about it, doesn't it? As if it is, yeah. you know, in, in, in a sort of a very alien landscape that all of this is taking place. Yes. I mean, obviously you can't... But they're Scottish. I, suppose, I mean, they're Scottish as well, ironically, yes. I maybe, think. maybe when he says, let's go to the States, he means uh, Tayside, uh, Lothian, <laughs> uh, Dumfries and Galloway. He, he more properly referred to as uh, local government regions mm. at the time, I think. It's a bit disappointing. You'd, you'd expect someone like Tony Blackburn to know better. Yeah. <laughs> I bet Pan's people did a right fucking good turn mm, to this mm. though. Yeah, is that episode lost by any chance? I like to think that um Babs knocked over a jigsaw or something <laughs> at the beginning. This tune though, fucking hell. I mean it's weird because I mean you can't yeah, you can't really argue with the tune, you can't fault the tune, but it's somehow or other I think that the kind of sheer lack of spectacle, it's almost like, you know, visually, it's almost like having a sort of fixed shot of the bloke running the projector booth, you know, it's just so, it's those mechanics, it's just very, very functional. And, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is a very, very memorable sort of thing, but somehow it kind of seems very reductive. I mean, if jazz is a conversation, you know, and if there's an element of jazz in this, I suppose it's jazz funk or whatever, but the jazz element mm. is a conversation. It's more like, turn out nice again. Yep. Turned out nice again. Turned yeah. out nice again. <laughs> yep. Turned out nice again. Turned out nice again. You know, before he embarks on a certain rather halting sort of you know, solo or whatever. And it's it's weird, really, that I should have... You know, I feel like I've kind of reacted slightly negatively to a fairly unimpeachable tune, really. I mean, this this is the kind of song that you hear so much yeah. of when you're a kid. Yes. That you, you don't form an opinion of it. It's just there. Mm. It's just part of the landscape. And it's only years and years later when you suddenly hear it again. You just think, fucking hell, that's good. Mm. And it's by, it's made by them, mm. them Scottish lads. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. See, it is good, but to me, it's like, I don't know, they're doing what they're doing. 
to a high standard. They're really good at playing, and it's nice to listen to. Uh, but these these are the kind of compliments that you find your brain dispensing. You know, it's like nice and quality. Mm. You know, yeah. it's it's a bit static. You know what I'm saying? Nobody is going to be transported by this or devastated. But it's not really sexy. It's not really evocative of anything. It's not innovative. Um, mm. And I mean, the playing's really good, but it's not so blistering and funky and fluid that. You know, the music just turns into lava and sweeps you away. I mean, what this really sounds like is very, very good incidental music. Uh, mm. Maybe, like, if you had a scene where a, a hard-bitten Scots detective is tracking a suspect <laughs> to New York City, uh, or the Big <laughs> Apple, as everyone who lives there always calls it, um, yes. and follows him through the sweltering streets and the, the seedy hamburger stands of the town mm. they call the big apple um yeah you know what i mean it's got or a or a, an animated sort of 10 frames a second line drawing animation of like a lanky loping groover in loon pants do you know what i mean like mm. perambulating down a wobbly street surrounded by yeah. some uh you know zonked looking pigeons on a telephone wire it's <laughs> very good it's musically it's very correct but it has mm a congenital lack of badness or bad acidness, if you will. Um, mm. It means it, it does fit in quite a sort of narrow and, and peculiar place culturally. I think the video is completely wrong because it's just going, hey, look, here's some musicians uh, achieving a standard. Mm. Yeah. And it's not as good as, as the single, but, you know, it's better than nothing. Well, what they should have done was just, if they were in America, just get the camera, put it in a shopping trolley, push it down a hill and just record everything. And as Twats would be sat at home going, oh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. They sell, they sell pizzas. Yeah. And, and what, what's a hero? How'd you eat that? <laughs> the trouble is, it does make it look like this gig was being played at a, a relatively manageable volume. And, uh, mm. uh, well, until uh, a few seconds before the end or a few seconds before this cuts off when, you know, mm. Big Eck or whatever his name is, like the the beanpole <laughs> sax player. He, he looks like Tony Roberts in Annie Hall, right? Well, whoever he is, he starts uh, mildly scronking and breaking mm. a few of the straight lines. You know, at which point you think, "Oh, this is getting good now," and the clip just ends abruptly. Yeah, yeah, um, everything's very, very truncated tonight, isn't it? Well, there's a lot to fit in, isn't there? Mm. We can say what we like about it from this distance, but. Placed in the context of a march in 1975, this is a colossus standing over everything else in this episode so far. Mm. And, you know, a good pat on the back for us for mastering black music, which we're going to see again in the very near future, aren't we? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the bass player here is a bloke called Alan Gorey, who yes. is really notable for two things. Firstly, about six months before this Top of the Pops, he had his life saved by Cher... Yes. When the average white band were at a party at Cher's yeah. house. And someone passed around some heroin, which they thought was cocaine. The drummer died, uh, yes. alas. And uh, Alan Gorey was saved by Cher, who made him walk up and down until medical aid arrived. Um, but it's weird. There was a lot of people who used to do that, like dying from taking one thing, thinking it was another. Like, was it that much of a social faux pas? 
in those days is you were lowering your face to the mirror to say, uh, what, what is this, man? <laughs> you, you just, no, no, it doesn't matter. Just shovel it up your fucking hooter, yeah. whatever. Uh, and the other main thing about Alan Gorey is that he appeared in that ludicrous film Permissive from ni- 1970. And I only uh, joined these dots the other day. It didn't occur to me until then. But yeah, it's him. Film Permissive, directed right. by uh, ultra hack Lindsay Shontoff, um, who also made Night right. After Night After Night, sort of grimy London proto slasher movie, and also made those abominable James Bond parodies like uh, License to Love and Kill, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my oh. life. Like trying to parody something that was already a self parody with. Gareth yeah. Hunt as uh, Charles. Oh, that yes, Charles Bind. Yeah, now that is an unfunny film, but mm. Permissive is a, an interesting one. It's a bad pseudo social realist uh, exploitation film about uh, underground rock bands and the groupie scene in the six vintes, uh unremittingly right. bleak to the point of comedy, um, oh. and. It's completely terrible in every respect in terms of the actual artistic choices being made by the people making or in the film. It's a terrible story, terrible dialogue, terrible acting, um, terrible direction. The worst sound I've ever heard in any film. Uh, but in other ways, it's amazing because it's it's all shot on location in London in the six fences. And you, if you ignore the story, it's like getting into a time machine uh, and stepping out into the the true ambience of you know we always go on about the misery of these ugly, smelly, hairy men in transit vans going up and down the M1 um, in the rain in mouldy overcoats. This film is like an instant portal into that stuff. And the group oh. in it are a real group called Forevermore, um, who were like a folk rock band who were really shit. And Alan Gorey was in them, and he stars in this film as himself and he's the big number one prize that all the groupie chicks want to ball um right despite the fact that i genuinely don't think i've ever seen a less attractive less charismatic man than alan gory in permissive um he's like a little wood troll you know i don't want to be mean about someone's appearance he's done it all to himself it's the hair and the beard and the just this yeah he's he's stomach he's like something off a woodcut you know, it's got to be seen yeah. to be believed. <laughs> anyway, that's that's Alan going. Well done, Cher, I suppose. So the following week, Pick Up the Pieces dropped six places to number 12. Its success in the US so rattled James Brown that his band, the JBs, recorded the tune Pick Up the Pieces one by one and called themselves AABB, the above average black Ooh. band. Oh. The follow-up, Cut the Cake only got to number 31 in May of this year, and they'd have two more top 40 hits over here before splitting up in 1983. Yeah, Cut the Cake. Apparently, it's not it's not Dundee cake they're talking about. <laughs> After, you know, losing one of your band members to drugs and then coming out with a song going, oh, well, let's have some drugs. It's, I don't think mm. you've learned your lesson, lads. No. Hello 
and welcome to the musical podcast. I'm Kiri. And I'm Jade. And I'm Dave. Dave's on keys. But we don't play that too much because otherwise we'll have to pay some people rights money. Yeah. Uh, we do a live show where comedians come and sing their favourite musical theatre songs in front of a live audience. This podcast is us bringing that person inside of a building. <laughs> welcome to Just a Minute with Jade Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy! I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey you have an instrumental hit in the charts, but there you go, all the way from the US of A. That's the sound of the average white band and pick up the pieces. It's incredible to think that it was exactly 11 months ago that Cliff Richard had a brand new record up. He's got a brand new one for us now, and here it is. comments on the rarity of instrumentals in the charts and then says he can't believe that it's 11 whole months since the next artist had a record out and now he's got another one. It's Cliff Richard and it's only me you left behind. We've covered Cliff all the fucking time, God, on chart music and this, his 66th single release, is the follow-up to You Keep Me Hanging On, which got to number 13 in June of 1974. It's a return to pop Cliff after a go at country music and marks a lull in his career when he's not got a new album out, he's not got a BBC One show out and he's not making any films set in Birmingham. So, here he is. In the studio. Mm. Well, cliff time again, Charles. Mm. A sprightly 34, and yet somehow yes. already as old as stone. <laughs> it's a really odd blend of life and death that we see here. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit disturbing to watch it. Yeah. It's what it reminds me of. It's that jarring thing you always get in zombie movies. You know, it always bothers me. If you watch a zombie film, and at some point, like all the graves are ripped open and the tombstones are chucked aside and the dead get up and walk and you see this army of reanimated corpses marching down the street and you think hang on a minute everyone in this graveyard seems to have died at about the age of 26 (laughs) that seems statistically improbable Mm. and there's a bit of the same thing going on here it's like looking at a young person who's been dead for a very long time it puts you on edge Mm. Mm. i'm old enough to be cliff's dad by this time yeah and I'd be right yeah, proud of him yeah. yeah always remember when you're depressed and you say that things that there's always somebody in the room that's even more depressed and that's me <laughs> <laughs> but it's got, it's got to be said that he looks pretty futuristic here by 1975 standards yeah. I was going to say exactly that I mean very futuristic he's got a grey one piece suit buttoned off down one side with 
like rubber trim. Yeah. You know, if you took the flares in and you put a stupid hat on him, you know, I'd say he'd have an even chance of getting into the Blitz Club in six years' time. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. He looks sort of part intergalactic mm. and part medieval. That's the weird yes. thing about it. It's sort of, he looks like he should be uh, cackling toothlessly while pouring a cauldron of boiling oil over the side of a CX-21 space cruiser. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, it's, yeah uh, I, I, I saw it more as a... I mean, I, I was thinking, like, in Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, when they have a sort of delegation from, like, you know, and the, the Betazoid uh, representative comes along, you know, for a drinks reception in 10 forward or whatever. It's, it's that kind of outfit, isn't it? It's futurist informal, as it were. Futurist mm. casual. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, he's the galactic ambassador from the planet Dork. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he looks all right. Well, it's what's nice is that this costume is obviously made for him. Mm. Yeah. Um, like a lot of, you know, olden days pop costumes. So, like, it's completely uh, original. It's like a unique creation, mm. but the cut isn't quite right. It's a bit homemade. Look, like, it was run up on uh, Deirdre Barlow's mum's sewing machine. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Mm. The song, though, I mean, by Cliff standards, this is all right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's kind of by default because, you know, pop music is in a bit of a quandary. And mm. I think that as a result, um, he he kind of emerges with a reasonable amount of credit from this. As somebody who's still vaguely got it, is somebody that's still just about able to hang in there. It's like, yes. in football terms, it's like George Best has gone, Jimmy Greaves retired, but Roy of the Rovers, Roy Race, the not actually yes. quite real <laughs> pop star that is Cliff Richard, is is still in there and he's still, he's still up there. God, yeah. Cliff Richard and Roy Race, man, the comparisons. Yeah, yeah. Cliff of the Christians. <laughs> But, uh, you know, he's got a kind of modicum of style, a certain amount of nous, a grasp of, you know, whatever wisp yeah. in the air is passing for the zeitgeist in 1975. You know, he's, he can, you know, he's still throwing those customised shapes that he throws. And it feels like a sort of yeah. solid 7 out of 10, really. It's, it's um, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, we're a year away from Devil Woman and all that, but mm. he's, he's gone through a period of, of, of doing a bit of country music yeah. and stuff, and he'll still dabble, mm. but that, that's not what people want from Cliff. No, 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 no. no. We, want, we want Pop Cliff. Any song that Cliff claps his hands in, you know, that, that'll do for us around about this time, I think. And he does, you know, he's got, he's got this kind of like three-clappy thing going on at the beginning of the song. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's uh, it's a bit undistinguished, though, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well to say, you know, well done for being able to stand upright and deliver the. <laughs> so it's really the only thing you remember about this song is those echoey claps, you know, because I mean that's practically the hook line in it. That occasionally it goes, yeah. and it sounds like he's yeah. trying to wake up the musicians, you know, mm. come on, yeah. heathen cunts. I mean, it's true. He's on the verge of making probably the best records of his stupid career, you know. Mm. But still, I don't know. At this point, he looks he looks like he'd be more suited to prison life than singing <laughs> contemporary pop. You know what I mean? He's like, uh, I mean, he's great suit, but he's relying. Well, that's all making sense now, isn't it? <laughs> but he's relying on the hit making potential of Hank Marvin here, who <laughs> yes. co wrote this song. Like, I mean, we complain about him, um, you know, employing B. A. Cunterson, but I mean, mm. Hank Marvin. 1975. You might as well have got Kenneth Kendall to write you a song. It's, yeah. <laughs> but it's not just the song, though. I mean, you know, it's the kind of arrangement. It feels, 
it, it, you know, it, it, it feels reasonably kind of efficient. Um, you know, he doesn't sort of make a fool of himself particularly in this. I mean, there are far more foolish-looking people in this episode than than than, than Cliff. Um, yes. You know, and I mean, yes, I mean, I think that it's fair to sort of like it's pretty mediocre. I and mean, we want to say seven out of ten. It's more like the overall kind of thing, you know, things like star quality and stuff like that. You know, I think, you know, the costume, the confidence with which he's kind of carrying himself at this particular point. No, but I mean, he, he hasn't quite developed the danger dancing yet, has he? He's, no. There's a bit of mild peril dancing, but he doesn't really... Caution dancing, if you will. I suppose, you know, with Cliff, like with anybody else in, in, in the 1970s, it's, you don't, it's best not to know too much about what they actually think and feel about things. Um, which uh, quite wisely they kept, uh, you know, well below the surface. I mean, you know, whether it's Les Dawson or Cliff Richard, it's um, you know, you you don't want to know too much. Oh, what about Les Dawson? What? No, nothing, nothing outrageous. Uh, I mean, you know, not on the sort of scale and Cliff, but he was, his his politics are a bit dispiriting, really. Um, oh. um, you know, so I'll put it that way. The kids are quite into the song, though, aren't they? The chat on the left. We're starting to see more and more of the audience, and I'm liking what I see. Yeah. There's one girl in Bay City Rollers getting. She's enjoying herself, but not as much as the two lads, one black, one white, in matching star jumpers, oh, yeah. Yeah. who've got into this routine of rocking from side to side, so they pop out by the side of Cliff. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's got the, the chap on the left, yeah, the white geezer. He's he's strutting away. He looks like he's experiencing feelings of confusion. Mm. He's perturbed at his exhilaration. Yeah. Uh, there, there's two blokes, though, um, who are, I assume are heads, uh, with massive fucking greasy bouffants, one of whom looks mm. a bit like Alberto Tarantino. <laughs> they're not mm. as impressed, are they? They're, that's not what they've come for. Hmm. No, and no, you look no. at him, you go, what are you doing on top of the pops? There's, there's going to be nothing here that's going to interest you. Yeah. You want old grey whistle test, mate, up the, up the corridor. Well, the one who caught my attention is, uh, there's a, uh, well, you know, like a lot of people in this episode in the audience are wearing things that have clearly been handed out to them. By yes, the band. yes. So there's there a, are a lot of K badges on. Yeah, there. there's a lad in a sort and of. And stickers. Yeah, he's got a sort of blue grey blazer on. And a big K bag. Oh, yes. And he's sort of staring bemusedly at Cliff as though he's, it's like he's looking at a, a snake that he's been told isn't poisonous, but he's not 100% convinced. He's, you know. <laughs> or, also, he looks like he's not quite sure whether or not he's actually dancing with the blonde girl next to him. And yeah. so he's, it's best is just to avert his eyes and just keep them fixed on something, like just anything mm. else. So while he dances in a slightly stiff and self-conscious way. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Yeah, the best bit is the very end. Well, obviously, but I mean, bef- yeah. just just before it actually finishes. Um, Cliff completes the song uh, with a healthy grin. Yes. And strikes a crucifixion pose. Yes. But he does it for about a second. And then it's as if he suddenly realised what he's done. <laughs> that he's taking the suffering of his Lord in vain. <laughs> So he kind of goes, ah, and panics and quickly raises his right arm vertically. <laughs> to a Nazi salute, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah so he's, got, no, he's got his left arm out like an a, a aeroplane and his right arm pointing upwards, thus uh, inadvertently signalling the letter J in the international semaphore alphabet. Mm. 
um, which is arguably a subtler way of creating awareness yeah. for the Jesus brand, right? But yeah, but only deeply religious sailors would have got that. <laughs> well, that's and his, I don't that's think they were, I don't audience. think they comprised a healthy percentage of top of the pops audience at the time. Yeah, worse than that, and Cliff would have been horrified if he knew this. It's also a signal from the secret international paedophile sign language. Um, no. Yeah, it's. I mean, he wasn't to know, obviously, but he was daisy birding. But what that signal actually means in the international paedophile sign language is, <laughs> I am not a paedophile. Oh. So you know, it might have been deliberate after all, because as we all know, he isn't. Oh, well, I suppose you know, it, it's, you know, it's a special meetings. You know, it's just like you know, the door, or whatever. <laughs> it would it would help the sort of people on the door. That um, you know, if he, if he gave that particular signal that they couldn't let you know. Well, 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 yeah. you know, you, you obviously no place here. Then off you go. Yeah, a twisted life of saints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the song, the song lyrics, the, the most unbecoming of mm. a man in his mid thirties. Oh, you, it's only me you left behind. Oh, don't worry, it's only me. Oh, it's it's. Horrible, yeah, you don't, yeah don't worry about me suffering here. Passive aggressive. As you're crashing out of Wimbledon yet again. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, despite the endorsement of Tony Blackburn, it's only me you left behind, was left behind in the back room of record shops across the nation, and it failed to chart. Mm. Three weeks after this episode, Cliff was in the Granada TV studios in Manchester to promote this single on the forthcoming Bay City Rollers show, Shang-A-Lang. And when he was whisked out of the studio in a police van, an estimated 300 Rollers fans charged at it, thinking it was their Scottish pop faves. (laughs) And in the resulting melee, a Greater Manchester police officer died of a heart attack. Death stalks this episode, Top of the Pops, doesn't it? The follow-up, a cover of the Conway Twitty single Honky Tonk Angel, was put out in September of this year and was set to put him back in the charts until it was pointed out to him by his fans that the song was about a prostitute, which led to him going on the telly and asking people not to buy it. He then refused to promote it any further and eventually got EMI to withdraw it on sale, which means that 1975 was the first year since he began that Cliff Richard didn't have a record in the charts. Hmm. But he roared back in 1976 with the LP I'm Nearly Famous and four top 40 hits, including Devil Woman. He could afford to do that, couldn't he, Cliff? I mean, I don't suppose he worried that much that this wasn't a hit, or he could that he can actually afford to go yeah. out and tell people not to buy a single that he's recorded. Although you'd have thought, I mean, in all the kind of the meetings, the pre-planning, the many hours that go into the kind of creation of things like this, that uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I would have had a word with his people at that point for uh, not, yeah. not flagging it up. I mean, you know. Even I would have probably known at the age of 12 what a honky-tonk angel was uh, and what she got up to. It's going to be my record of the week next week on Radio 1 between 9 and 12. It's a really great year for Wigan. And in fact, we have now Wigan's ovation. We're going to go skiing in the snow.
that he's going to make Cliff his record of the week next week and then informs us that it's already a great year for Wigan as he introduces Skiing in the Snow by Wigan's Ovation. Coined by music journalist and record shop owner Dave Godin in Blues and Soul magazine in 1968, Northern Soul was a term for the stomping mid-60s Motown sound that was falling out of favour in America, but was still highly prized by provincial sorts, and was taken up as a labelling system by London record shops for the benefit of travelling football supporters on an away day in the smoke. Thanks to its burgeoning popularity in the Northern Midlands, it threw up a swathe of old records into the charts in the early 70s, including I'm Gonna Run Away From You by Tammy Lynn, Heaven Must Have Sent You by The Elgins, There's a Ghost in My House by Ardine Taylor, Love on a Mountaintop by Robert Knight, and Hey Girl Don't Bother Me by The Tams, which got to number one for three weeks in September of 1973. By late 1974, as Northern Soul reached its peak, Russ Winstanley, a DJ at the Wigan Casino, linked up with Disco Demand, a subsidiary label of Pie Records, who would come across a 1968 single by Canadian band The Chosen Few and held a clapping competition at the club, with the winners being taken down to London to overdub clapping on a speeded-up version of the instrumental, along with crowd sounds taken from the 1966 FA Cup final and when it was put out it appeared on top of the pops accompanied by a selection of casino dancers got to number nine in February of this year and spent four weeks in the top ten while Futsa by Wigan's chosen few was kicking its flares all the way up the charts Win Stanley seized the opportunity by approaching a local glam band called Sparkle and getting them to cover this song which was originally recorded by Sophie Chance as the Beach Girls in 1965 and then covered by the soul band The Invitations a year later The latter version sank without trace until it was discovered by Ian Levine in a warehouse for TK Records in Miami and possibly purchased from Harry Kayser, who worked there before becoming KC of the Sunshine Band. While FTSE is still hanging in there at number 33, Skiing in the Snow has soared 20 places from number 49 to number 29, and here they are in the studio. Five words before we start, gentlemen. The racer of Northern Soul. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) I mean, Christ almighty. Keep the faith. Yes. I mean, it doesn't help that there's an Art Deco flavour going on in the top of the pop studio. We're seeing all this kind of like 30s stuff all over the place. And this band have been plonked in front of a stage that has, well, it, it kind of got a dartboard motif about it, hasn't it? And the, um, and what they're wearing, it does make them look as if they're about to have a go at the bronze bully challenge, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's mm. so tempting to pretend that this is great. Just to piss off the old soul boys, yes. you know what I mean? He thought it was something <laughs> worth getting mm. angry about. Mm. Um, and they did. But no, yeah, but it's it's not, it's horrible. It's, they're just like a bunch of rowing club lads in, in yeah. crappy dart shirts that have already been washed a few too many times. Northern soul like it used to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, I mean, they got a guitarist with a haircut like a wigwam and a, a, that <laughs> terrible singer. He's like, do you know what I mean? He's like as soulful as a roll of wood chip, mm. just real pub singer. He's like a like a provincial Friday night Roger Daltrey if his yeah. rock horse had been a gelding. Uh, <laughs> and it's the thing it is, looks a bit like Mickey Most, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean they've got the, they've got those Northern Soul shirts on with the patches on <laughs> that look like football shirts. So it. It's as if all the Panini stickers of Scottish Division One plays you've got loads of doubles of have come together to form a super group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so shabby. And the terrible thing is, Northern Soul is mm. not an especially tricky style to assimilate or approximate, mm. right? There's a lot, a lot of white British groups who've done it, right? Because mm. the heart of Northern Soul is not some arcane African-American cultural secret. Right? It's pop songs, it's certain chord changes, it's like a emotional in quite a simple and commercial and instantly comprehensible way. Um, it's got a high tolerance for gimmicks mm. um, and it's quite yeah. easy for musicians who haven't been raised in a particular culture to understand it and, and get it. Because it's not roots music, it's city pop music that's already mm. the, pro- the product of cultural crossover. Um and it's not even original in itself, you know. It's like it's the uh, no. uh, Sleaford Mons, it's the, the, the Northern Soul Motown on the doll. Um, and yeah. because it's so simple and so free, it gives you a lot of space to do your own thing. So, in yeah. theory, it's an ideal music to be influenced by. Like Soft Cell can synthesize it and make it mm. camp and sleazy. It's, it, it works perfectly, you know. Or Dexes yeah. can do it with a sort of rough edge and uh, streams of ranting lyrics, and it's brilliant. Although the purest soul boys saw Dexes as another Wiggins ovation, pretty much. But yeah. there is a lot of snobbery there. That's half the fun <laughs> of it, you know. Yes. Um, but the one thing you can't do mm. is the one thing you can never do, which is just come along and imitate the basic structure of a style of music mm. and cop a few of the trappings and then just play it with all the guts and feel of a preset on a Casio keyboard, you know, with a mm. horn section recorded in a sock. Um, it's the problem with this music. It's, mm. it's nothing to do with Northern Soul. It's that it's just it's lumpy custard as, as pop music, you know. Mm. I mean, the record's bad enough, never mind this re-recording that they've done for Top of the Pops, the fucking mug. <laughs> this is the thing, at least with Paul Nicholas and reggae like it used to be, you knew that he was alluding to reggae. It's like, it's, for me, as a kid, I would have been mystified as what this is supposed to be alluding to at all. I mean, you know, it's a great year for Wigan that I would have just found instantly depressing because, you know, I wouldn't have been thinking of yeah. Northern Soul. I was just thinking of Eddie Wearing, you know, Rugby yes. League. That's it just yeah. had it, holy Rugby League connotations. And yeah. as you say, you know, the kind of, just the sort of lump and crappiness of this, you know, would have just dispirited me further. It certainly would have been any kind of gateway to Northern Soul, that's for sure. David, I mean, you were 11, 12 at this point. Were you aware of Northern Soul being a Northern Soul yourself? I was a Northern Soul. Um, I, you know, as a church-going boy, so I was, you know, I felt I did have a soul. Um, mm. But no, no, Northern Soul was just not a concept known to me. Um, you know, there's various of the trappings. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Lionels, stuff like that. You know, the yes. the, the togs, that was, that, that was Deary Gurr, you know, for like Saturdays. They have got some proper Saxons on, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but no, I, it just wasn't something that I was aware of at all, and this certainly didn't help. Of course, they are backed by the top of the Pops Orchestra, the, the masters of black American feel. Yes. <laughs> uh, who are really keeping the flame burning here, aren't they? And of course, the vital hunting horns motif, of course. Mm. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's, I think it's actually pinched from uh, Lonely Surfer by Jack Nietzsche. Yeah, it sounds like the end of Sapphire and Steel, opposed mm. yes. to the ATV end cap. Um, <laughs> I think at least some of the listeners will get that. And the, 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 the sort of paper scarves, it's pitifully budgetary, yes. isn't it? Yeah, they've, they've, given, they've given the kids a load of tiny banners to wave about, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's pitiful, really. Paper scarves, you know. It's just like, what should we do? I'll just lob them in the bin, you know. I mean, the song is it, it's a weird one, because out of the three people who've done it now... None of them you'd expect to go on skiing holidays. No. Yeah. You know, Californian girls and yeah. urban black Americans and, and this load of cloggers. Skiing in the snow. I, I'm, what else would we be skiing in? Mm. I mean, I don't know, maybe Very true. sand or shit or, you know. <laughs> Skidding in the shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. See, this is what we're reduced <laughs> to. Also, that silver box is back in the audience that we were talking about earlier. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, uh, and it does look. And you can see it from a side angle. It is a camera. Is it really? It looks like yeah. they got it out of a Spitfire. <laughs> yeah, it, what it looks like. It's like if if someone had gone to the moon in the thirties, that would have been mission <laughs> control. You know, but whatever it is, you know, it, they've got it out in the middle of all these kids when it, it will have cost sixteen thousand pounds. You know. Mm. Which is uh, seventeen thousand pounds in today's money, yes. perhaps even more. <laughs> um, the part of the issue here, I think, right? I, I don't think the authenticity or otherwise of this record is the issue, right? No. The problem, I think, you have to delve a bit into how, into the back and forth between historically black and white styles of music and how that works and doesn't work, right? Like how it's a a conversation that's resulted in some of the the greatest pop music ever made, but it's not always a simple thing to explain when it works. Yeah. Uh, Never mind when it doesn't work, but they're not playing a song with its roots in some traditional experience that's unknowable outside of an American inner city or a gospel church, right? You would expect that this is lifted from the invitations version, right? The Northern soul. Yes. Which is, but when you listen to the version by the beach girls, um, whose very name tells you all you need to know about their rootsy authenticity. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like it's like a Beach Boys cash-in, sort of with a bit of that sort of four-freshman sort of quasi-barbershop thing mixed with a... Well, it's, 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 got, a, it's got a Frankie Valley feel. Yeah, yeah, it? well, it's but because... In, in this singer's hands, it's more Frankie Trough. <laughs> right, because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a Bob Crew production who uh, worked right. with the Four Seasons, and it's written by um, uh. Sandy Linzer and Denny Randell, who are pure New York songwriting robots, right? Like, sort of involved mm. with Don Kirshner and people like that. Went on to write Native New Yorker and... Uh, really? Yeah, and... Um, Fucking Breaking hell. Down the Walls of Heartache and stuff. Loads Shit. of really good songs. Um, mm. This is, you know, their early work. And it's obviously supposed to be a cash-in and a bit of a novelty record, but... Yeah. But it's quite good, though. It's a silly and confected piece of music, but it's all right. Okay, and so when the invitations do it, they take this sort of what is basically a sort of a cutesy white middle class record and soul it up, right? So already you've got a like an, an ongoing swirl 
of musical possibilities and sort of mixtures of styles around a really daft song, which was obviously just written more or less to mm. order. And it's all going fine. You know, you've got two different versions of this song and then these ham-handed knock and nailing with your head fucking driving test failures <laughs> show up and do it like a top loader <laughs> tribute act you know just oh. plow, well they are they're plowing straight down the middle do you know what i mean it's a vague imitation yeah. of the basic shape of the song uh which mm. is the the dumbest and the crassest and the least interesting thing you can do to to any song so there's no subjective judgment possible here this is clearly much worse than the invitations mm. record because it's just yeah. the same but one of them glides and the other one is slowly pedalling uphill with like beads mm. of sweat gathering in its bum fluff moustache, you know. And it's, it's <laughs> only, it doesn't do anything with soul music. It's white soul whose only concession to its whiteness is a almost total dearth of soul. Um, mm. It adds nothing mm. to this song and it just subtracts everything this is this is weird i mean if you think about a lot of the sort of slightly painful preoccupations of say 10 years onwards 86 87 as regards soul or whatever with you know you know authenticity um retro style and all that kind of thing they're just not evident here at all and just not evident generally in pop it's you know it is the kind of instant whippy or you know people don't mind the kind of sort of synthetic recently invented aspect of things you know people aren't really sort of harking back, you know, that authenticity is just not much of a preoccupation in, in pop at this stage. No, but I mean, the whole idea of Northern Soul always bemused me because it's like early 70s. It's not like black music has stopped making decent music. Mm. What is it about the majority of white British people who, who just yeah. take ages <laughs> to pick up on, on what black music is doing? Yeah, there's always that delay. There's always that delay, and I think it's to do with, you know, there are people that are right now, probably just about now, getting comfortable with Public Enemy, who mm. absolutely were not at the time. I think there is something unnerving to a lot of like, white rock fans about contemporary black music and the kind of sense of menace and threat it kind of might entail, and they're much happier and comfy with the kind of the vintage version. I mean, even like, something like the Blues Brothers, mm. somebody's talking about that, that... I mean, that's all very kind of vintage. You know, this is 1980, and apparently Rose Royce put themselves up to be featured in the film and they got knocked back, you know, because they mm. were just too contemporary. There, there always has to be that kind of 10-year lag. And, I mean, I think that people are uncomfortable with the inherently futuristic nature yeah. of black music. Um, and why wouldn't black people be sort of, like, futuristic? What they got to be nostalgic about, you know? Um so, um, but yeah, it's very different with white audiences, and, and, you, and you do get that lag, you know, the affirmation and you know, that delay in which you know people kind of get their kind of dues. Yeah, and it's like I mean, with Public Enemy, it's interesting. Another example. I mean, when I saw them in 1990, the audience was almost entirely black. I mean, ten years later, the audience is entirely white. You know, almost. It's... That's really weird because when I saw Public Enemy in 1988, mm. it was about 60 percent white people, uh, yeah. and I and I rolled up to it thinking, oh, shit, what if I'm the only white person there? That's interesting. I was, well, I was in 1990, yeah, I mean, it was in Birmingham. I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah. yeah. I started listening to Northern Soul in the mid-'80s. Mm. And, you know, there was loads of decent black music going off, but I, I wouldn't have any of it. I wouldn't give it ass room. Mm. And it's only now that I go, oh, actually, that's fucking amazing. What, what the fuck was up with me? Mm. 
Yeah. Strange. Yeah. That Northern Soul, essentially, it was not quite successful Motown. And I suppose the, yeah. the reason why it's wonderful is that Motown, the trouble is like, you know, Diana Ross and Supremes or whatever, the Four Tops, those tunes have been played and played and played so much that they're so familiar that they, you know, they, they, you know they, they're victims of that and they've kind of lost a certain element of freshness. And, you know, the idea of picking up on an exciting tune that's been in some sort of language in some warehouse in Miami for, like, 30 years. And even if it's not technically quite as good as, like, it one of the do. sort of absolute Motown family. It, yeah, and it's true. And the freshness yeah. of it is what makes it really, really exciting. It's, you know, that almost like feeling of, like, hearing a Motown track for the very, very first time. Yeah. Rather than the thousandth time. The lead singer. Um, one thing that, that caught my eye, he's got proper old school tats, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just words carved mm. into an arm. <laughs> Probably went to a, a, a tattooist mm. that says, oh, look, I only do naked women or swallows. Anything else you can't have. Or, yeah, or a, he... a, a black fist? No, I can't do that. Did it himself <laughs> with a compass and a biro. Yeah, because, you know, there was a trend apparently amongst Northern, the Northern Soul contingent of... Um, putting in serial numbers of record companies or um, <laughs> big pharma companies who made speed. Oh, right, yeah. But mm. this is a prog band, isn't it? Yeah. This is the other motif of mm. this episode. Proggers stopping doing songs about griffin lords or whatever <laughs> and, you know, cashing in. Because mm. apparently this band, Sparkle, they were known for playing the Wigan Casino, but on rock nights, right. which finished just before the all-nighters started. Yeah. So they'd be coming out of the club, lugging their fucking amps and everything, mm. wearing vests with the armpit ears sticking out, yeah. going, fucking hell, all these people wanted to get in to see us, <laughs> but there was only anyone there. What's going on? Yeah. According to Stuart Cosgrove in the book Young Soul Rebels, on Thursday, 20th of March, 1975, a date etched like a horrific murder in the minds of Northern Soul fans, Wigan's Ovation appeared on top of the pop, singing an old torch classic, Skiing in the Snow by the Invitations. The group were dressed in exaggerated baggy trousers and T-shirts adorned with soul patch badges. It was the first time many people had become acquainted with the term Northern Soul, and unfortunately, the cliches stuck like a demeaning glue. <laughs> For the underground hardcore, it was a dire time. Our Vietnam flashback moment, as Mike Mason, a Scottish Northern Soul collector, put it. A fucking travesty. In extremis, this was the night that the Wigan Casino died. Or more accurately, the night that the club's first generation fell out of love with a place that had defined their life. I can imagine that they would, obviously they would think this is appalling, but I mean, the idea that it somehow kind of shed any light on their kind of world. Mm. (laughs) You know, it's not even a sort of dilution or whatever or an appropriation, really. It's, it's... It, it's, it obfuscates it. In Top of the Pops parlance, Northern Soul was like a mayfly. You know, we, we've seen it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And mm. that footage is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've just got a lo- about a, a dozen kids in, uh, in, in the Northern Soul gear just spinning around and around while the audience looks on, thinking, hang on, this isn't Pan's people. What's going on here? Mm. I mean, this is it's a rare incursion, you know, for Top of the Pops to do something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's on the video playlist, everyone. Make sure you check it out. It's, it's, it's remarkable footage. Yeah. The following week, Skiing in the Snow moved up four places to number 25 and would get to number 12 a month later. The follow-up, Personelli, 
got to number 38 in July of this year, and after Super Love got to number 41 in November, they never came back to Chartland and split up in 1976. One thing I will say for this record, I think it's the only British hit single with a double I in the title. Really? Unless, of course, you know different. The number 29, and that's the number called Skiing in the Snow. Here's a fabulous record, not only to listen to, but dance to. So get up, have a little dance around your television sets, take your mama for a ride with Lulu. Tony commands us to dance around the television set, which my mum would have gone mental at before, as he introduces Take Your Mama for a Ride by Lulu. We've covered Wee Marie for a Glasgow almost as many times as Cliff on chart music, and this is her 30th single release after a renaissance in 1974 that saw her take The Man Who Sold the World all the way to number three in February of that year, her first top 40 hit in five years. It's the follow-up to The Man With The Golden Gun, which was put out in December of 74 and failed to chart, and sees her trying to move away from her belty gut bucket stylings and try out a more laid-back contemporary approach. Although the single's not out yet, she's midway through her seventh and final Saturday Tea Time show on BBC One, now called Lulu, which gives her a free pass to pitch up and do her thing. Oh, it's about time, Lulu... Uh, came back to chart music. Yes. I mean, this is this is Freeman's Lulu, isn't it? Mm. The catalogue queen. I mean, she's only, what, about probably 26 27. or 27, maybe, yeah. Jesus. But um, it's strange. I mean, it's it's all 27 going on 47, isn't it? It's, it's mm. in, in, in various ways, really. I mean, you know, a 27-year-old in 1975 is a 47-year-old in today's money, isn't it, really? It's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, I, I would have watched at the time, and it, this would have felt punitive, really. Um, you know, this is always a thing. I mean, it, it, there was so much in that, just like that sort of 30 or 40 minutes that you just had to had to wade through, really, to get this, to the stuff with, you know, a bit of thrust or whatever. And, uh, you know, and it's almost like, um, you know, you're not getting your basic roll of chips until you've had some... You know, until you've eaten your Lulus, <laughs> you know. By this time, Lulu would be the woman off the catalogue adverts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, that would be lying about that I would have zero interest in because they haven't got any toys in them. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit too young for looking at pictures of bras. Yeah. It was all Playtex cross your heart in those days, wasn't it, still? Yeah. Mm. She's having a go. Like Cliff, she's, she's, try, she's trying to progress, isn't she? She's trying to kick on. Yeah, there's that slightly desperate bit when she kind of, come on, everybody, you know, and it's just like, mm. it, you know, it, that is the real kind of mum dancing moment, wasn't yes. it? It's like the kids are looking on like her own children in deep embarrassment, you know, as if she's had a couple of baby shams or something. Yes. <laughs> there's something so uncomfortable about the the forced sexuality mm. of this performance <laughs> as well. It's not right, is it? It's fucking Lulu. I mean, you know, literally. Yeah, it does mm. smack of, oh, you're getting a big lad out, Jason. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you like dancing? 
<laughs> yeah, it's all this uh, all this mid seventies sleaze going on. It's really inappropriate. Mm. It's all you know, shag pile rugs and hairy cocaine <laughs> sex. It's I blame that David Bowie. She yes. never used to be like this. But it's not no, right. She it's didn't. Lulu dressed in the uniform of the nineteen seventies permissive jet set. <laughs> She's mm. got designer jeans mm. and a load of blusher and blue eyeshadow, gyrating her hips and smiling coquettishly, but like interspersed with her usual sort of wide mouthed primary school teacher smiles, you know. It's like this yeah. really uncomfortable combination of flaunted sexuality and a heart that's not quite in it, right? Because, mm. you know, we know what Lulu really is. So it, she just comes across like someone who's got divorced about seven years too late and is now on the prowl, <laughs> you know, like singles bar mm. junk food. And it's like, if she'd, I don't know, she, had she been to LA or something? Because that's what it's like. Know. It looks like she spent too much time in LA and come back with like a suitcase full of shiny wet look lipstick and low-cut blouses and the idea that this version of the 70s was for everyone which it clearly wasn't Mm. because here Mm. it's like she's plonked down in front of a crowd of littlewood shoppers and you know scowling lank-haired frumps with visible panty lines and lads who (laughs) lads who spent like the last five years peddling their chopper bikes around the playing fields and the <laughs> brutalist shopping precincts of Boreham Wood. And she doesn't look like an alien that has descended into this scene or a, a stranger. No. She's too close in nature to them and you can't be fooled, right? Because she's got nothing to fool you with. So yeah. as the performance wears on, you can see her sinking back into this world that she belongs in. And all that mm. sort of at one of boogie night stuff looks increasingly transparent. And like a, a false promise because she isn't that person. No. And anyone can see it. And the the best she can hope for is is to be a slight embarrassment at the next wine and cheese party. Anyone can see it. It's they wouldn't yeah, they, don't don't bring Lulu to my wine and cheese party. <laughs> no, she'll just have just she'll just hit the hit the red a bit hard and uh yeah, yeah uh, it's it, they I mean look, they wouldn't have let her into studio fifty four. Basically, would no. they? They wouldn't even let her into no. Studio Fifty Three. <laughs> that was much worse. She's on course for a, a tepid affair with a a divorced thirty-six-year-old from the sales force who thinks he's a space-age super stud because he wears skimpy men's briefs mm. under his weekend <laughs> Wranglers instead of you know he chucked out his pale blue wife fronts with the elastic peeping through the hem. Like when he was married, you know, he's fucking misery. Thank God for the end of that world, right? Thank God for the normalization of filth in this country, yes, right? And the end of people having to guess what might be sexy because they have no ideas of their own, you know. And whatever new problems that's created in society, I would take them over Lulu in heat. Right, which feels like a a slap with an extremely cold fish. This song said nothing to me about my life, put it that way. Yeah. It's essentially saying, oh, go on, treat your missus to a night at a Bernie Inn. Take her out. Give her a chance to wear all that wonderful Freeman's catalogue stuff she's just bought and that's just hanging in the fucking wardrobe. 
The audience don't know what to make of it either. They're really embarrassed. No, no absolutely. They yeah. They don't know where to look. Mm. There's a bloke yeah. right down the front who look, looks like he's waiting for the fall to form so he can be the drummer. But <laughs> in the meantime, he's just sort of leaning over his concave chest and looking yeah. at the ground, you know. It's, because yeah. it is embarrassing. Kung Fu Pajama Man's back, though, isn't he? He is, yeah, in full effect. He's putting some moves on the, uh, on a very petite lady with flicked back hair, but she's, she's not having it. no. No, 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 no. Well, you know, this record is bromide, isn't it? Or this performance. Mm. It's, because the point is, if you're going to go all out and try and be sexy, an overtly sexy, raunchy woman is powerful. But a fake one who gets it wrong just kind of looks lost. You know, I like when a man tries to do this and fails. He looks like a cock. Mm. And you just want to throw fruit at him. But when a woman tries to do it and fails, it kind of puts you on edge. And it's just a bit awkward. And that's what's happening here. You can see all these uh, all these eyes being averted from the spectacle. So a month later, take your mama for a ride. Enter the charts at number forty nine, and two weeks later, it got to number thirty seven, its highest position. The follow up, Boy Meets Girl, failed to chart, and she was done with the top forty for the next eleven years when a re-recording of Shout got to number eight in August of 1986. But she spent the rest of the 70s as a BBC regular, popping up as a guest on the Les Dawson Show, Seaside Special and Blankety Blank. time to call time on this episode of Chart Music, I believe, and extend an invitation to come back tomorrow for the final episode. On behalf of David Stubbs and Taylor Parks, my name's Al Needham. I implore you to keep the faith and stay pop-crazed. <laughs> Chart Music. Great Big Owl. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. (laughs) 